calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Ugh, Madigan is mad again this morning, y'all. I somehow lost the first like four and a half minutes of audio from this episode while I was editing it. I don't know if it was my editing software that blipped out on me or if it's something to do with my power in general with these terrible rains we've been having right now in Los Angeles. So I am going to be re-recording the beginning of this episode. So if my tone seems different or anything like that, that is why I'm going to do my best to fill in what was lost in the beginning to catch you up to the next point that I have already recorded in the episode. I do know that in the beginning of the episode, I spoke about how excited I was to be able to talk about this topic today because I am an unbelievably huge Golden Girls fan. I've been a fan since I was a very little girl and would be stuck home sick all day And they would always be on smack dab in the middle of the day for me to be all snuggly and spend some time with those four wonderful ladies to make me feel so much better. And I had to kind of grapple with how I wanted to present the Golden Girls on this show because it is such a huge favorite of mine. It was kind of a pain for me to have to refer to this episode as a problematic fave because I did kind of originally want to just do like a general discussion about the Golden Girls, but as I was thinking back on a lot of the times where, particularly when Max and I now watch back and we're like, ooh, ooh, and some of the things that go on in our set, and I think it's really important to point those out, but at the end of the episode, I'm also going to be discussing some of the positive aspects of the Golden Girls because I really do think that culturally they made such an important impact in so many different ways in a lot of different communities' lives. The show originally aired on September 14th, 1985, and it ran for seven seasons until May 9th, 1992, which was just two months before I was born. Come on. The main cast is Rose Nyland, played by Betty White, Blanche Devereaux, played by Rue McClanahan, Sophia Petrillo, played by Estelle Getty, 
and Dorothy's Bornak, played by B. Arthur. Now, it's really funny because a lot of people in my life know that I love The Wizard of Oz and The Golden Girls so much, and I have people who will ask me if I named my dog Dorothy after The Wizard of Oz or after The Golden Girls, and it's so funny because like Golden Girls was something later in life that I became really, really attached to, so obviously Dorothy is named after The Wizard of Oz character. This show critically did amazingly. It won two Primetime Emmy Awards, three Golden Globes, and each of the four stars received their own Emmy, which has only happened four times total in the history of the Emmy Awards, so that's pretty huge. And the show was also ranked among the Nielsen Ratings Top 10 for six of its seven seasons. The show was groundbreaking in that it touched on taboo topics at the time and portrayed them through the perception of a character we don't normally see and relate to, which is, quote-unquote, older women. Now, in today's view, I don't think these women are actually as old as we perceived them to be when we were younger in the 80s and 90s watching this show. It's funny because a lot of the articles that popped up in research for this episode were comparing the fact that the Golden Girls are actually the same age as the Sex and the City characters are now in their spinoff, what's it called? And just like that. According to the website CBR.com, who did some research into the girls' ages at the beginning of the series, and they project that Blanche would have been about 47 years old, Dorothy would have been about 53, Rose would have been about 55, and Sophia, of course, being a little bit older, portraying, you know, Dorothy's mother, is 79. And all of the women actually played younger than they are, except for, of course, Estelle Getty, who played Sophia. She was only 62 years old when she played the approximately 79 or 80-year-old Sophia. Betty White was actually 63 years old at the start of the series, and so was B. Arthur. And Rue McClanahan was 51 at the start of the series. So it's interesting that they, you know, are playing younger than they are, but they're also, I feel like, portraying these 50-something-year-old women as being so much older than they are. Like, when I was growing up, I figured that they were more so in their, like, late 60s, early 70s or something like that, like, later on in their lives. But, like, no, they still have, you know, years for careers and other things ahead of them. And that's one of the main objectives, I think, of this show is portraying these women of not being at the end of their lives, but still having so much life ahead of them. All of them had been married, had children. They were grandparents and at times great grandparents throughout the series. And it shows that these women were more than just those caretaker roles. They were their own independent women, and they had all been through hardships in some ways when in regards to their partners. Dorothy, of course, was divorced from her shitty husband, Stan. We will talk about him a little bit later on in the episode. But Blanche, Rose, and Sophia all lost their partners, and they had to deal with a lot of grief and also what it means to move on in love after a loved one is gone. And I talk about that later on in the episode as well, but I wanted to mention it now because I think that the way that they handle life after death and grief and illness and everything like that is just very, very progressive for the time. For those of you who have never seen The Golden Girls or aren't as familiar with the show, let me give you a quick synopsis so that you won't be totally lost throughout the episode. This is according to the show's IMDb page, by the way. 
four mature women <laughs> live together in Miami and experience the joys and angst of their golden years. I love that they refer to it as angst because I think that that's such like a young and feisty word to describe somebody. Strong-willed Dorothy, Spacey Rose, lusty Southern Belle Blanche, and Matriarch Sophia, Dorothy's mom, occasionally clash, but are there for one another in the end. After all, when the show's theme song is titled, Thank You for Being a Friend, the ladies have to remain friendly with one another. (laughs) They don't always remain super friendly, but something I love about this show is that it shows how, you know, you can fight and sometimes even say hurtful things to your chosen family, but it's important to apologize, make it right, and to love each other through it. And that's something that all of these ladies really exemplify. Also, I can't remember if I added this in a later part of the episode that will be coming up, but I will be referring to them as girls a lot throughout this episode, and that's just because that's the title of the show, Golden Girls. And in my notes, I capitalize the G in girls each time. It's not a way for me to belittle them and not, you know, showing that they are fully grown women. Also, whenever Max and I watch the show, he's always like, you want me to turn the girls on? So I always refer to them as the girls. And they all live in a house together. The house belongs to Blanche Devereaux. And her roommates are Dorothy's Bornack and Rose Nyland. And Sophia Petrillo, Dorothy's mother, moves in in the pilot episode after her nursing home, Shady Pines, burns down and she needs a place to stay. It's also important to note, I think, that when we meet Sophia in the first episode, it's explained that she had a stroke, which left her with no filter of speech. So she, right off the bat, says what she's thinking, is very, very blunt, and is kind of a jerk at times, too. But she's also this really adorable old lady, so you can't really get mad at her. But all of these four women lived together and really exemplified what it meant to have a chosen family. And I think it also really exemplifies this women supporting women culture even before it really existed in the mainstream. And it showed that you could have really deep loving relationships for other people that aren't your romantic partners either because the show shows time and time again that no matter who comes into their lives, they are always going to be there for each other and looking out for each other first and foremost. So even though I love this show so very much, and I think that it has done so much good, it definitely has its bad, and I think that we can learn from that too. A pretty major theme among sitcoms during this time, I would have to say, is the racism that is involved in the shows. The 1988 episode Mixed Blessings was actually pulled from Hulu for a, quote, blackface scene. Though when you actually watch the episode, the scene that they're talking about, yes, of course, it's it doesn't look great. But there were other things in the episode that I think were much more harmful, especially because, spoiler, it wasn't really blackface. Blanche and Rose just had like a mud mask on their face. And then what they had to say about it was more offensive than the actual thing on their face. In my opinion, if I'm wrong, like, please check me. <laughs> So in the episode, Dorothy's son Michael shows up and lets the ladies know that he is getting married to a woman named Lorraine. Now, Lorraine happens to be black, and I'm going to state that because it is very important to the storyline of the episode. When Lorraine shows up, Dorothy actually believes that Lorraine is her mother at first because the two have quite an age difference. 
It appears as though Dorothy was more so surprised that Lorraine was black and horrified that she was almost twice her 23-year-old son's age. After Lorraine met the rest of the girls, they planned to meet the rest of Lorraine's family. In preparation, Rose was expressing to Dorothy that she had some hesitations about meeting Lorraine's family and had some pretty ignorant racist questions to ask Dorothy. And that's something with Rose where I feel like in general, she's saying the quiet part out loud. And most of the time, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a harmful thing. But in this case, I'm not even willing to repeat the quotes that are said in the episode. That's how bad they are. When Dorothy meets Lorraine's mother, Greta, she speaks with her about the concerns she has about the age gap between their children. What's interesting is that Greta doesn't seem to have a problem with the age gap, but she does have a problem with the fact that Michael is white, which is completely understandable to me for so many reasons, but especially because the Golden Girls did not give them the best welcome. And I think that if I were to learn that my child was marrying into a maybe somewhat bigoted family or ignorant family, that wouldn't really make me feel super warm and fuzzy either. When the families finally do join together, Sophia refers to Lorraine's mother and aunts as Martha and the Vandalas, which is a black female vocal group from the late 60s, early 70s. And she also asked one of the aunts, is it true what they say about black men in bed? This episode is truly one terrible trope after another of how terribly white people speak to black people as if they're less human than themselves or live some drastically different lives. And the fact that they would be so okay with playing up on these horrible stereotypes, I put a lot of shame on the writers for that. But like I mentioned at the top of this topic, neither of these incidents were the reason for the episode being pulled from Hulu. In the B-plot of the episode, Blanche and Rose have been doing elaborate beauty routines to prepare for a sexy weekend cruise at sea with a set of twins. When Lorraine's family walks through the door of the girl's house, Blanche and Rose are wearing a brown face mask. Embarrassed, Rose says, This is mud on our faces. We're not really black. Yikes. Eventually, the girls and Lorraine's family sit down for a cheesecake chat to try to work out their differences. Just then, Rose answers the phone to learn that Michael and Lorraine have decided to elope. The group gets there before the service begins, where Lorraine spills the beans that she's pregnant. When Greta and Dorothy learn this, they decide to agree with the nuptials. I have noticed a trend in my research this week of the girls wanting a lot of control over their grown children whenever they appear in the episodes, so stay tuned for that. Elliot Powell, an apparent Golden Girls scholar, which if I had known that that was something I could do with my life, I would have started working on that a long time ago, and also a professor at the University of Minnesota, says that by Dorothy and Greta grudgingly accepting the marriage, the episode, quote, suggests that mixed raceness can bring about the end of racism. I wish I could have rewatched this episode to give more quotes and context, but I think it's probably a good idea that this one was pulled from the streaming world. For me, the most blaring example of racism in the show is Blanche's Southern Confederate pride. Blanche once said that her perfect man would have, quote, the body of Mr. Mel Gibson, the personality of Mr. Johnny Carson, and the financial resources of Mr. Donald Trump. Ew. 
In a season six episode that aired in 1990, Viola, who was Blanche's former nanny, who is also a black woman, comes to visit in order to retrieve a music box that she had given Blanche's father. Viola also reveals that she and Blanche's father, who Blanche cringingly calls Big Daddy, had had a decades-long affair in a time when interracial marriage in the Jim Crow South was illegal and interracial affairs were taboo and dangerous. When Blanche learns of this, she expressed disbelief to Viola, saying, Daddy was a Republican and thus wouldn't do that sort of a thing. Blanche also expressed the hurt she felt when Viola left without any explanation when she was a child. Viola eventually told her that when Blanche's mother found out about the affair, she was forced to quit and leave. Viola said in another time, the two would have gotten married and shows the letters shared between them from over the course of 50 years. By the end of the episode, she and Blanche make up. The one major point that comes to mind for me as I type up the synopsis of this episode is power imbalance. Blanche's father was a wealthy estate owner, and I can only assume either a plantation owner at one time, but he definitely was a descendant of them. His relationship with a woman that worked for his family was totally inappropriate on its own, but adding in the fact that Viola was a black woman in the Jim Crow South makes it even more plain that she did not have equal footing in that relationship. Even if they did believe they were in love, this relationship seems manipulative and abusive to me. And in my opinion, that's also shown in the fact that she gets fired for the affair with Blanche's dad. And that really shows that she didn't have any power in the relationship. She lost her way of making money. She lost someone that she thought was important to her. And she also lost Blanche in her life, who was also very special to her. And so I really think it was totally on Blanche's father and his fault for the way that that relationship panned out. It was just wrong and inappropriate. There's also a lot of mention throughout the series of Blanche being a member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. According to Wikipedia, the United Daughters of the Confederacy is a hereditary association for female descendants of Confederate Civil War soldiers engaging in the commemoration of these ancestors, the funding of the monuments to them, and the promotion of the pseudo-historical lost cause ideology and corresponding white supremacy. Yikes, yikes. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Lost Cause ideology believes that the Confederate states during the Civil War were just, heroic, and not centered on slavery. It was first enunciated in 1866 and still influences racism, gender roles, and religious attitudes to this day. In the show, Blanche tries to join a similar fictitious group called the Daughters of the Old South. When I googled the Daughters of the Old South, Daughters of the Confederacy showed up, so pretty sure it was the writer's way of slipping it in there. So as Blanche is trying to join this group, she has to dig into her family tree to kind of like prove her bloodline, which is like so gross in and of itself. But in doing so, she realizes that she has a Jewish relative, which would make her ineligible to join. Again, it doesn't really seem that Blanche is upset about the fact that she has a Jewish relative, but she is upset by the fact that this Jewish relative was born in Brooklyn, New York, making him a, quote, Yankee. Blanche decides to do her best to hide her new knowledge of her heritage from the daughters, but she eventually confesses to them. In a very tone-deaf moment, she acts as Moses leading the Jews away from Egypt, proclaiming, Let my people in! 
They claim that she can't join because she has, quote, Yankee blood. All of this is even more upsetting if you remember that in an episode in an earlier season, Dorothy drops a new friend after discovering that she is a member of a very similar group to the Daughters of the Confederacy. In the episode Dorothy's New Friend, Dorothy befriends an author who the rest of the girls find snobbish and aloof. Dorothy tells Barbara that, you know, she doesn't really feel like she's vibing with the girls and she wants them all to get along better. So Barbara invites them all to the most exclusive club in town, the Mortimer Club. The girls are all getting ready to go out and then Sophia's date arrives. Then Barbara pulls Dorothy aside and is like, hey, I need to talk to you in the kitchen. Barbara then tells Dorothy that because Sophia's date is Jewish, he can't come because the Mortimer Club prohibits Jewish people from coming inside. Dorothy is offended and upset by this and tells her that she doesn't want to be a part of that kind of club or be friends with someone who could be a part of such a thing. So it's strange that Dorothy didn't fight Blanche more on joining the same kind of group when Blanche was talking about it all so very openly with all of them and Dorothy was very ready to cut off this other person in her life because they exhibited the same kind of racist behaviors. So I don't know if you all have heard about the amazing spinoff of Golden Girls that is Golden Palace. If you are a fan of Golden Girls and haven't seen it, It's on Hulu. You have to check it out. It's so underrated. It's absolutely fantastic. In that show, there is an episode called Hometown Races Aren't Nearly As Much Fun As They Used To Be, which has become somewhat viral within the last few years because Don Cheadle actually had the role of the hotel manager, I believe, or concierge. And there was a really poignant scene where he and Blanche have a really important discussion surrounding the Confederate flag. So mentioning one of these fictitious Daughters of the Confederacy groups again, in the episode Blanche has decided to house the Daughters of the Traditional South at the hotel. Don Cheadle's character Roland is upset that Blanche would be so okay with racists staying in the hotel. Roland says, These bigots and bonnets aren't staying in this hotel. Blanche says, Roland, there is nothing wrong with the Traditional South. Roland says, Oh, I see. When they put those sheets over their heads, it must be some kind of salute to Casper the Friendly Ghost. Are you telling me you don't see these women for who they really are? Roland goes to leave and Blanche says, Where are you going? And Roland says, Oh, to get my jockey suit and lantern. I'm going to stand on the front lawn and make him feel right at home. And Blanche doesn't seem to really understand what Roland is getting at or why he has such a strong reaction to this. And I believe they do discuss this early in the episode as well about her having the Confederate flag out on the front desk when the women arrive to the hotel to kind of like welcome them or whatever. And Roland thankfully expressed the fact that he wasn't okay with that. But Blanche kind of steamrolled him and made him compromise, saying that she would just have it up when they arrive and then she would take it down right away. In the B-plot of this episode, Rose is uncomfortable with the fact that a man she knows to be married is carrying on an affair in the hotel and doesn't want him to stay there anymore. She even speaks with Roland about it and tries to compare her situation with his. Roland explains that Blanche's group represents those who show a total disregard for a whole race of people. Rose defends Blanche, saying she isn't like that, but Roland isn't so sure. Later in the episode, Blanche is seen welcoming her guests in an outfit Scarlett O'Hara would have been jealous of and hangs the Confederate flag over the front desk. 
Roland tries to explain again to Blanche why the flag is damaging, and Blanche tries to convince him that it's all ancient history and that it isn't like that anymore. Roland says, How about on Tuesday nights we hang the Nazi flag, hire an Oompa band, and then dress you up like Eva Braun? I'm going to play a bit of a clip from a particular scene from that episode. I think it's really important to hear what Don Cheadle's character has to say. You know, I remember once when Big Big Granddaddy Hollinsworth took... Just stop it. This flag, Mrs. Devereaux, is not about college football games or, or quilting bees or fried chicken on Sunday. It's about colleges that won't let me in. It's about companies that won't hire me. It is about crosses being burnt on people's lawns today, not in the evil past, Blanche, today. And not just in the South, all over. The North is just as bad. Damn Yankees. <laughs> so clearly, Blanche doesn't really understand. Even when Roland is spelling it out for her, what this flag represents to him, she still wants to see this shiny, rose-colored glasses version of the Old South that she experienced when she was a little girl. And the more that Roland tells her these things, the less she's able to be able to keep that rosy version of her childhood to herself. Roland then eventually tells Blanche that he doesn't want to work for somebody who holds those kinds of beliefs. Later on in the episode, Blanche talks to Roland and asks him please not to leave. And Roland one more time has this conversation with her, which must be absolutely exhausting. Finally, Blanche has a moment of reckoning. She realizes how prejudiced she's acted in the past and in the present and wonders how she's supposed to think of herself, her loved ones, and the place she loves so much since it is all tainted with racism. This episode came out in 1992, the year that I was born. And I think that this is still something that most white people have to be able to understand that we have to be able to recognize our privilege and be able to learn from the ways that the people that look like us in the past have hurt people of color and understand how we may be acting ignorant or prejudiced or biased to certain things and to lead by the example of the people that have actually experienced the hardships of that time and listen to them instead of trying to argue why it's not actually a bad thing. You know, that makes me think a lot about my former, you know, Minnesota Twin City pride. And then everything happened with George Floyd. Those protests happened. And everything else in my hometown that made me really feel a lack of pride for being from there. And once you really see things for the way that they are, you should feel differently about it and you should have a moment of reckoning and be able to understand that even though you might you might love certain people, those people might not have always made the best decisions. They might not have always been the best human beings in general. And you have to be able to still acknowledge the negative things that the people in your past have done. I think it's an important part of growth. Another very problematic episode is called The Housekeeper. In season three, the girls hire a black housekeeper by the name of Marguerite. And Marguerite, they have written to play the terrible TV trope of the magical Negro. A quick note, as it becomes important later, Sophia is actually out of town for a wedding when they hire Marguerite. So most of what goes down is without the blatantness of Sophia's voice. 
Initially, Marguerite seems like a lovely and hardworking person and incredibly helpful personally as well. She gives Blanche a love potion to help her with her love life and gave Dorothy a little rock to put under her bed to help her sleep. Discovering this rock leads the girls to believe that Marguerite was some kind of caster of spells or the old stereotype of the witchy island woman, which is a really racist assumption they're making, especially because if their housekeeper was an old British woman, they probably wouldn't assume the same. However, this harmony is short-lived as Marguerite begins to show up late or not show up at all. This really gets on Dorothy's nerves right away, but Blanche and Rose still seem to see only positives in Marguerite. In one scene, Marguerite is late once again, and Rose is doing some cleaning. Dorothy gripes with her about Marguerite, but Rose tells Dorothy that Marguerite had a good reason for not showing up. She had to, quote, pluck a hair from the chin of a dwarf. She also talks about needing more herbs for Blanche's aphrodisiac, which in re-watching this episode, knowing how it plays out, but kind of forgetting all of the points in between, I was like, this isn't doing you any favors for them not thinking that you're into witchcraft, girl. What are you doing? The girls eventually agree that Marguerite has to be fired due to her lack of showing up. But before any of the girls can say anything, Blanche steps in to let Marguerite know that Tootie was her favorite character in The Facts of Life. For those of you not familiar with the show The Facts of Life, Tootie was, I believe, the youngest and the only black character to appear on the show. So this is an incredibly racist remark to make. I've said yikes twice in a row. Now I'm going to say yikes three times. As Marguerite leaves, she turns to the girls and says that they are making a very big mistake. The girls are very intimidated by this. After that, they all seem to be experiencing bad luck, making them believe that Marguerite has put a curse on them. In order to reverse their bad luck, they invite Marguerite back over to the house to smooth things over. Just as things seem to be looking good, Sophia comes home. Dorothy tells her mother about what's been going on, and Sophia, being Sophia, approached Marguerite asking her, What's this crap about you putting a curse on my daughter? Marguerite finally explains that it has all been a misunderstanding. The love potion was actually just perfume, and the rock was Sophia's, which she had misplaced. Marguerite explains that she had been slacking because she's studying to be a lawyer, and used the magic guise to keep them from noticing. Now, while this was all written into the story to play out this way, it is really upsetting that they had to play up that negative, magical Negro trope in this episode for poor Marguerite. In season two, episode three, entitled Dorothy's Prized People, Dorothy asked her class to write about what it means to be an American. One of her students, played by a young Mario Lopez, whose character's name is also Mario, particularly stood out to her as it beautifully described his first day in America. Without asking him, she submits his essay to a writing competition, which he ends up winning. The girls throw him a party to celebrate, but it is unfortunately cut short when the feds show up. Apparently, this paper led them to discover that Mario was in the United States illegally. That night, Dorothy is so wracked with guilt that she is unable to sleep when she gets a call from Mario's sister saying that they can't find Mario. Dorothy knows to find him at the movie theater somehow. I think it's earlier in the episode. I didn't rewatch this one. And she sits with him and tells him that he should go to his trial and promised to give a statement for him in court. When she goes to court and gives her statement, Dorothy is frustrated and feeling like the judge doesn't understand her passion. At the end of the episode, we learn that Mario will be deported. And Dorothy again makes a promise that she will do everything she can to bring him back. 
Of course, we never see or hear from Mario again. The fact that they somewhat bring up the topic of privilege with Dorothy's total lack of thought into her student's safety, I think is a good thing. But I don't like the idea that she submitted this paper without his permission in general, even though I know she was just trying to do something nice. Especially with the story being my first day in America, I feel like someone who is a substitute teacher or has a good amount of education behind them or anyone who is a little bit thoughtful should maybe think to be able to protect their student before just looking for accolades. All right, before we move on to the next topic, we do need to take a short commercial break. See you in a bit. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back. Now, the next episode that I wanted to cover a bit has two important storylines in my perspective, even though one of them is actually a very short snippet from the episode. In the episode, The Accurate Conception, Blanche's daughter, Becky, tells her mother that she is going to be going through with artificial insemination in order to have a baby, and Blanche has mixed feelings about it. Later on in the episode, when they are at the doctor's office, to make her friend feel better, Dorothy says, Among the four of us, we have each conceived a child in a different way. Now, the start of this quote is innocent enough, but she goes on in the same breath to say, I was totally unconscious. When I came to, there was Stan carving a notch into his dashboard. Dorothy's mother, Sophia, quips back, I never bought that unconscious story. Dorothy says, I swear he must have slipped me something. Sophia says, apparently. Then the audience erupts into laughter. Imagine telling your parent or someone close to you that you were drugged and raped, which resulted in a pregnancy, and that person never believes you and on top of it, makes jokes about it. 
Because Dorothy was pregnant, she and Stan were forced to marry, meaning Dorothy was forced to marry her rapist. Her mother then never let her forget that she got, quote, knocked up before marriage. In one article I read, it says, I believe Dorothy's omnipresent, seething rage for Sophia is rooted in that she went to Sal, her father, and Sophia for help after being raped, only to have them tell Dorothy it was her fault. The fact that this is never addressed as being problematic is worrisome to me, and at no point in the show is Dorothy's experience called rape, which normalizes that experience for audiences in a super harmful way. And this is something that's kind of brought up a lot throughout the series as well. There's jokes about, you know, the way that Dorothy conceived the first child and met Stan. And Stan is a pretty big character starting, I think, like halfway through season one or maybe in season two throughout the rest of the series run. And he's seen as kind of this like lovable idiot. And Dorothy and Stan kind of have this love-hate relationship going on a lot, but I think that if you really were to pay attention to that quote, it's really hard to look at Stan the same way again when you really listen to what happened. But like I said, that episode wasn't even about Dorothy's rape. It was literally just that one quote. But this episode also shows how far we've come as a society in accepting artificial insemination as a legitimate baby-making process. After a week of mother-daughter bonding, Blanche's daughter reveals to her that she would like to undergo artificial insemination to have a child and become a single mother. She makes it very clear to Blanche that she does not want to get married. Blanche is horrified by this and reacts very harshly to this news due to its, quote, unnaturalness. Blanche tells Becky that if she were to go through with it, she better wait until she's dead, until all of her friends are dead, too, so that her daughter can't embarrass her. Becky then says that she's going to do it whether her mother likes it or not. One of my favorite quotes in the beginning of the episode is when Dorothy notices Blanche in the kitchen late at night. So she asks, hungry or suicidal? To which Blanche replies, it's not easy being the mother to a daughter with her own free will. Then Rose joins, followed by Sophia, and they have one of their infamous late night chats. The girls are shocked when Blanche tells them and speechless, which is especially shocking for Dorothy and Sophia. Blanche eventually spits out, For God's sake, somebody say something! To which Rose replies, Blanche turns to Dorothy, as she's usually the most forward thinker in the house, and she too replies, Becky eventually convinces Blanche to go with her to the sperm bank and see what it's really all about. At the appointment, Blanche gets enraged and storms out. Back at home, the girls confront Blanche and tell her that she has to apologize to her daughter before she leaves Miami. Blanche explains to the girls that it isn't really about the artificial insemination, but about the feeling of the loss of control over her daughter now that she's an adult. You see what I mean? Why are they so controlling? Blanche isn't good at apologizing, but knows she's in the wrong. Becky is actually listening in on the conversation the whole time. And in the end, the girls still think the whole thing is a bit icky, but they all agree that Becky should be able to do what she wants with her life. Eventually, Blanche kind of apologizes, even though it's Dorothy who actually says the words, I'm sorry. This also brings up a great point that it's important for grown-ups and parents to admit when they're wrong and apologize to their children. Everybody makes mistakes, and we have to normalize that. Later on in the series, Becky comes back to Miami to get ready for the birth, and she tells Blanche that she wants an at-home birth, and that's a whole other point of contention. 
Blanche says, first Becky conceives in a clinic, now she wants to deliver in a bedroom. She's got the whole thing backwards. This is a funny episode, too, because when they go to the place for the natural births and Becky asks, why is she screaming? To which Sophia responds, she's conscious. I'm now wishing that I had actually written about this episode because I didn't even really think about it until I was recapping the one that I had wrote about. But one of the biggest episodes that always jumps out in my mind of being really problematic is another episode involving Blanche's daughter, Becky, where Becky is coming to visit the girls. And we've never met the character Becky at this point. So I believe this must be earlier on in the series. And Blanche is just going on and on about how she's this like beautiful model and yada, yada, yada. And when Becky shows up, she is a plus size woman. And Blanche is just terrible to her daughter the entire time about her weight and wanting to put her on a diet and exercise and all this kind of stuff. And Becky's like, look, mom, like I'm okay with how I am. You're the one that has a problem with it. But then also in the same episode, we meet Becky's fiance. So clearly we know now this doesn't work out. But she had a fiance at the time and the fiance was just terribly emotionally abusive to her and he like told her what to do and would just kind of tease her and Blanche eventually saw the way that her daughter's fiance was treating her and was like that's not okay like you need to treat my daughter better than that and I think that that kind of showed Blanche that she needs to have a better perspective of her daughter's choices in her life and the way that her daughter sees herself and she needs to not have a problem with the way that her daughter looks And I think that that's another thing that shows about how much control parents can want over their children and how it's shown in this show quite a few times because parents, I think, oftentimes can tend to live vicariously through their children or see their children as a reflection of themselves rather than them being their own autonomous human beings. And Blanche surely struggles with that a lot throughout this series with her daughter. Now I want to start getting into some LGBTQ topics. This show is a bit dichotomous because it at one time very much celebrates the gay community and the LGBTQ community, but at the same time, there's a lot of really problematic moments throughout the show as well that I hope would never be redone in 2022. Fun fact, in the pilot episode and in no other episode, they have a like cook or cleaner or housekeeper of some sort who is a gay man, which I love because it very much reminds me of one of my favorite movies, The Birdcage, with Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. And it reminds me of Hank Azaria's character as the like housekeeper in The Birdcage. It's so funny. Um, I really wish they would have kept him around. I wonder if that would have added anything to the show or if maybe adding another character into the main cast. I don't know. But I do kind of wish they would have kept him around a bit more. But the episode that I really wanted to talk about today is the 1988 episode in season four called Scared Straight, where Blanche learns that her beloved brother Clayton is gay. Now, Blanche did not take it well at all. According to the Golden Girls Wiki fan page, Clayton lived most of his life as a closeted gay man and hid his sexual identity from Blanche and the rest of his family. He was even married to a woman for several years, but he admits that the marriage was his attempt to deny his sexuality until he couldn't hide it anymore. Before telling Blanche, Clayton runs into Rose at the park after leaving a date Blanche had set him up on and ends up opening up to Rose in a super sweet and hilarious scene. Rose tells Clayton that she'll help him tell Blanche and encourages him further. 
When they arrive home together, Clayton then claimed to have slept with Rose in order to further hide his secret from his sister. Rose is not too happy about this. They discuss the situation the next day and Clayton expresses that he can't tell Blanche. And Rose says, you're selling your sister short. At times, Blanche can be very understanding and compassionate and forgiving. Just then, Blanche barges in and says, Get away from my baby brother, you cradle-snatching, empty-headed, two-faced dummy. To which Rose says, And then other times, she can be a real bitch. Rose tells Blanche that she will be apologizing on hands and knees. Blanche says she will never apologize. Clayton and Blanche then begin to argue, and Clayton finally comes out to her. Blanche straight up doesn't believe him at first, and she asks him to look her in the eye and say it to her again. He knows she heard it the first time, and he leaves. At the end of the episode, she finds her brother at a bar, which she assumes is a gay bar, so when a guy hits on her, she says, I've done the impossible. I've converted one. That is such a late 80s response. In the end, she explained that this is new to her, but she supports him, and she'll get used to it which I think is the best outcome to ask for in Blanche's case. Another sore spot for the LGBTQ community is the mention of Dorothy's brother, Phil, throughout the series. Dorothy and her mother, Sophia, often make negative comments about the fact that Phil likes to wear women's clothing. On the flip side of this, in one episode, Dorothy lets her old friend Jean stay with them. Jean happened to be a lesbian, and Sophia mentioned that she had already known that, which surprised Dorothy. Sophia said, Jean is a nice person. She happens to like girls instead of guys. Some people like cats instead of dogs. Frankly, I'd rather live with a lesbian than a cat. Unless a lesbian sheds. I don't like that. Dorothy decides not to tell the other girls as they worry that they would judge her friend. This episode gets a bit dicey after Jean and Rose get close and Jean confesses her feelings to Rose, making things rather uncomfortable. Jean wants to leave early because she's embarrassed, and Rose tells her that even though she doesn't reciprocate those romantic feelings, she's flattered, and they agree to be good friends. Another part of the episode was that Jean was grieving over the fact that her partner for a long time had passed away, and Rose is able to empathize with Jean about losing a partner. So now that I've mentioned a lot of the really problematic elements, I want to talk about why it is generally hailed as being an iconically feminist show. The whole premise of the show is inherently feminist, in my opinion, minus the fact that the main characters are all white, straight, cishet women, so not quite intersectional, but anyway, all four of our main characters are women over the age of 50 who are living on their own and relying on and supporting each other. They've all had kids, and they all become grandparents and great-grandparents throughout the show. But their worth is not based on the role of caretaker for others, as women that age are usually portrayed. They all live well-rounded, fulfilling lives. And they have sex. How many TV shows can you think of where women over 50 talk about sex this much? And how many times do we actually see quote-unquote old ladies in bed? While I'm at it, let's talk sex. Refinery29 rewatched every episode and tallied up how many men each of the girls had slept with. Now, I do want to say this is not to slut-shame them because honestly, it's very impressive. 
Also, the girls always talked about having safe sex. One of my all-time favorite scenes is when the girls buy condoms at the store. It's so funny because the girls are in this like convenience store shopping for this cruise that they're going to go on. And Dorothy starts talking about how they should bring protection. And Rose is just like not getting it. So in one of the most iconic moments of the entire series, in my opinion, Dorothy just goes, condoms, condoms, Rose, condoms. And it's so hilarious. And it gets worse because they get in line and like they can't find how much the condoms cost. So the worker over the intercom is like asking how much these very specific and raunchy sounding condoms cost. And Dorothy Blanche and Rose are just so embarrassed. It's one of the funniest scenes, in my opinion. Anyway, according to Refinery29, Blanche says she slept with 143 men, but research indicates that if you count all the references to dates in former flames, the number might be closer to 164. In second place is Dorothy Zbornak, who clocked in at 43, including her ex-husband Stan. Boo! Next up is Rose, with 30 lovers, despite losing her virginity on her wedding night to her husband Charlie. She also had a long-term relationship throughout the series with a wonderful man named Miles, which I don't want to forget mentioning. Last up is Sophia Petrillo. After three marriages, one more engagement, and a bunch of dates, her number is 25. The show broke new grounds for discussing sex and women talking to each other about sex without any real judgment. Though the girls love to give Blanche a hard time, I truly think it's all in good fun and not legitimate slut-shaming as there are times when Blanche does get herself into some sticky situations, and the girls are always there to support her. From an article on GetMeGiddy.com, a writer says that the girls, quote, stoked our imagination by returning home in clothes they had on the night before, renting dirty movies, spicing up the bedroom with costumes, raiding their partner's lovemaking, and so on. They also talked about sex in a way that it was fun for women, which was a really rare discussion at the time when most conversations around sex involved pregnancy and STD prevention. There were two episodes in which they touched on unwanted sexual advances, including in the season six episode Feelings, when Rose comes home from a dentist appointment shaken with the thought that her dentist preyed on her while she was unconscious. And in another episode called Adult Education, Blanche is taking classes and her professor uses her reputation to manipulate her into sleeping with him into getting an automatic A in the class, to which she refuses. The show's creator, Susan Harris, said in an interview for Out Magazine, We like to tackle not outrageous issues, but important issues. Things that people went through that hadn't been addressed on television. Harris previously worked on shows like All in the Family and wrote the historic episode of Maud, also starring B. Arthur, which covered abortion and won a humanities prize for her work on the episode. One episode that always stuck with me was the episode where Rose worried that she had been contracted with the HIV virus after a blood transfusion during a gallbladder surgery six years prior. She is advised to get tested, but while she waits for the results, she panics and begins to blame herself, thinking that God was punishing her for something she's done. Rose's dialogue embodies a lot of what older, middle-class, heterosexual women at the time believed, that they shouldn't get such a disease, and that none of her friends would want to associate with her if she had it. To Rose's panic, Blanche replies, AIDS is not a bad person's disease, Rose. It is not God punishing people for their sins. This episode first aired in 1990, when AIDS testing was still relatively new. Since 1981, over 100,000 deaths from AIDS had been reported by the CDC, and almost one-third of those were during the year 1990. 
The show also tackled domestic abuse, body image, eating disorders, teenage pregnancy, ageism in the workplace, emotional abuse, and homophobia. And ageism was probably the most major and obvious topic of them all, as we saw them battle different forms of ageism throughout the series. The show creator Susan Harris says, I think everybody, including younger people, when they reach an age when they feel alienated, the thought of being alone and spending your life alone is terrifying. These women were at an age where they were alone and were likely to stay alone until they found each other. Then they constructed a family that really, really worked. They encouraged each other and had a life together. It showed that you didn't need the customary traditional relationships to be happy. It paints a picture of all the possibilities for family. They dealt with discrimination when trying to get jobs or promotions, when going after men, when being treated by medical professionals, and so on. The show dealt with the death of friends and loved ones and how they persevered together. One of my favorite lines is when Sophia learns that her friend was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and she tells Dorothy, You know, Dorothy, people think if you live to be my age, you should be grateful just to be alive. Well, that's not how it works. You need a reason to get up in the morning. And sometimes, even after you find one, life can turn right around and spit you in your face. Life was tough, but they had each other. Susan Harris said she wanted everyone to know that, quote, there is life after 50. People can be attractive, energetic, have romances. When Rue and Betty were guests on the Phil Donahue show, a guest called in thanking the women for making her feel 52 and gorgeous especially in an industry that pressures actresses to go to great lengths to maintain or restore their youth, the Golden Girls embraced aging with all the humor, wisdom, and vulnerability that comes with it. Although what's funny is that uh, Estelle Getty is really not that much older than the rest of the cast, but she is playing a woman that's meant to be, you know, 20 plus years older than them. So they had to use a lot of like prosthetics and makeup and things like that to make her look older. But between season one and two, you know, she made a lot of good money. So she went out and got like a facelift and things like that. And she came back to film season two and they were like, Estelle, what did you do? (laughs) So maybe in real life, they didn't always feel like aging was as graceful as you know their characters portrayed it but they definitely did show the rest of the world that you could be a quote-unquote older woman and a complete badass at the same time aging with dignity author ajan po wrote probably the most effective product to come out of hollywood in terms of turning around the cultural stereotypes around older women was the hugely successful show the golden girls in the late 80s and early 90s These four women had their own distinct history and personality and shattered the stigma and invisibility around aging in the most hilarious and enduring ways. Another great theme throughout the show is that you can find love after loss. All of these women have gone through losses in different ways in their lives, especially with their life partners. The only one who didn't lose their life partner to death was Dorothy. She lost her partner through divorce and good riddance to Stan. But Blanche always talked so positively about her husband, George. Rose always spoke so lovingly about her husband, Charlie. And Sophia clearly missed Sal so much throughout the series. And all the flashbacks involving him were always so sweet. But each of these girls knew that they had more life to live. And they knew that love could happen for them again. 
And Rose was pretty lucky. She found Miles for a while, who was so sweet and gentle with her and patient. And they were also supportive of each other in their love lives. And that's something that I also really love about the show is that just because you feel like one part of your life is over or the traditional part of your life is over, there is still so much more life to live. And we can always turn our lives around and turn it into something better, even after tragedy. And I love that there is a show for people who have gone through loss and want to go on living their lives that have an example like this that show how you can still love someone even after they're gone and honor them and be respectful of them and still go on living your life. I think that that's a really, really beautiful message as well. Oh my goodness, as I am talking about all of these episodes, I'm literally running through like 10 more topics I wish I would have covered, but oh my gosh, this episode would have been like three parts long. I don't know, maybe I'll do a part two one day, I don't know, but um, I love this show so much. I'm really glad that I was able to take a look at it from a more critical lens and discuss a lot of it with you today. I had a lot of fun doing a problematic fave. I haven't been able to do one since back when Keegan and I were still doing the show together. So if you have any ideas for a problematic favorite for me to cover in the future, please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. If you like the show and think others would too, please go over to your Apple Podcast app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. And you can also rate the show on Spotify. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed rewatching these old Golden Girls episodes and talking about them with you all. That's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. And thank you for being a friend. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.